Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect, in association with the Youth Social Mobility Charity, Speakers for Schools. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. We're speaking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is an actor who attained international stardom with roles in Homeland and The Night Manager. He was the first black actor to play Othello at the National Theatre 25 years ago and has delivered acclaimed performances as Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela. His latest role is as a white Conservative commentator, William F. Buckley, pitched against the Liberal Gore Vidal in the hit play Best of Enemies, which has been receiving rave reviews in the West End. He has made documentaries about slavery and racism, as well as an award-winning film about his own psychotic breakdown. Earlier this month, he was awarded an OBE in the New Year's Honours list. But he still sees himself as an outsider, and he called his memoir, Maybe I Don't Belong Here, There's a sense of displacement that's been constant throughout my life, he says. David Howard, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. What is it like playing a white right-wing Republican? Did you identify with Buckley at all? And and how did you come to play him? Identify with him? Not really. I don't like his politics. I I don't um, believe... I'm not a Conservative. I originally turned the part down twice because I couldn't really see how I could get there and what I could give this, how, you know, what I could give this character. But the more I read about him and the more I read the play, uh, it, felt, it, it felt very Shakespearean, that this journey from this man who was sort of all about decency and honour and sort of respectability and dignity and the correct way of being, and then sort of let the cat out of the bag during this last debate and calling Govidal a queer... Uh, and then just regretted that for the rest of his life, literally for the rest of his life, just ate away at him. And I, something about that I found quite Shakespearean. That you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, that that you know, once that once that uh, shine was taken off him, he couldn't really kind of rise to the heights that he that he you know he he, he you know he, he he sort of let himself down. And I found that tragic. His own show, Firing Line. Um, was the long, one of the longest-running, I think the longest-running single presenter show on American television. And on the very last episode, Charlie Rose showed the clip where he um, called Gore Vidal a queer. And he got really upset, and he left. And I found that really, all those years later, you know, that it's still haunted by, by that. And I, I, I found that... Uh, 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 as I say, almost Shakespearean, and that sort of led me to think, well, you know, maybe there is a journey here for me to play. And did and, you have any qualms at all about playing a yes, white I did. character? Not and, a white character, because they're all characters for me. I mean, they're characters, yeah. and and um, 
So do you think color, casting should be genuinely kind of colorblind? Or? No, I don't think it's color. I don't. I don't. I don't think it's colorblind. I think the fact that we make Buckley black in in our production. I think it's. I think it's a stroke of genius from Kwame, uh, director of The Young Vic. Yes, Kwame, Kwame Kwame Because Jeremy Harry and all James Graham. That's not what they were thinking. He's. He's. He, it was his suggestion, and they sort of both stopped for a minute and went, "How's that going to work?" And once they'd sort of got their head around it, they could see that by casting the character as somebody who was likable as Buckley was and black, it gives him relevance and it challenges the audience really because they kind of. The audience like me, and the audience like Buckley. Some of the audience like Buckley, uh, and I think I think had you cast Buckley as a white conservative, and you'd have had two white people debating, I, I'm not sure it would have had the same impact. Mm. And actually, for an audience, modern audience, modern left wing, left leaning audience, I mean, the theatre audiences tend to be left leaning liberals, uh, not always, but and maybe not in the West End, um, but. Uh, for, the, for them to come away thinking, actually, that Buckley was, I quite like that Buckley. And to come away thinking, I quite like some of the things he said, I think it's quite remarkable. Because uh, you would think they would all sort of be on Gore Vidal's side. Yet, through a certain degree of charm and humour that I, that I imbue the part with, people do kind of come away with a different view of Buckley, and, and as I did. Mm. We want to take you back to your childhood. You grew up in Small Heath, a uh, suburb of Birmingham, and your father was a lorry driver, your mother a caterer. Mm-hmm. Did your dad take you on trips with him in his truck? All the time, yes. <laughs> Did you love it? I loved it. It was, it was you know, my chance to see, see the country and see the world and, and daydream staring out the window, you know, daydream as, I, as, I, as, as the countryside rolled by. What was the music you played? Uh, well, he, he always had the radio one. Radio one, I was always on, on, and so there was always um, Steve Wright in the afternoon, which was very, very funny. Mister Angry from Pearly, um, and and stuff like that, and just just kind of regular pop music. And um, we didn't really speak a lot. My dad was my dad was quite a kind of quiet soul, um, and that was okay for me. But just I, just being in his company and and you know watching the say watching the countryside roll by was. Was, was and he bliss. had a special uniform, didn't he? Yeah, he had these sort of. Um, I mean, back in the day, I don't know whether they were told to, but you know, you know, he it was a shirt and tie and grey shirt, grey tie, grey blazer, his little cap, <laughs> and uh, his keys and jing- jingling keys, and uh, he was kind of he's like a, it was like a uniform, yeah. and um, you know, he he. You know, really prided himself in in that. You know, iron his trousers before he got out there, make sure his suit was hung up in the morning. You know, for the for the morning, and it was a, uh, it was his duty. It felt like it was his duty to kind of you know go to work and, um, and uh, and serve. And it was it was. Um, I I always remember being quite impressed by that, the fact that he took real pride in, uh, in how he turned himself, mm-hmm. how he turned out. And at one level, it does sound like a really happy childhood because you were running around with your siblings. And, mm. But there was a darker side. One of your earliest memories is of a racist attack when you were yeah. only about three. So it's a very early memory. Yeah, I mean, back in the you know, late 60s, 70s, growing up in, in the 70s as a black person in most major cities, maybe not in London, or maybe certain areas. I've spoken to friends of mine who said it was quite different in London because there were more black people. Growing up in Birmingham was... There was an element of danger. Just going to the corner shop was taking your life. I mean, skinheads, skinheads in those days would literally chase you on sight. 
and um, throw things at you. Um, and, you know, you were constantly racially abused, walking to school, walking home from school, let's say going to the corner shop, literally the minute you walked out the door uh, and have various things thrown at you or spat at. So that, and I, and I didn't, wasn't aware of that. Obviously wasn't aware of that when I was very young, just in the house. But as soon as I started leaving the house, I became very quickly aware of that. And um, that one incident was, I was playing with my siblings and I kind of um, ran out of the back door and poked my head around the door and this brick hit me square in the face and split my head open. And um, my mum knew exactly who threw it because, you know, the, the neighbours were, weren't very pleasant and were consistently throwing bricks through our window and abusing us all the time. Well, she, at that time, she marched off to the police station and said to the police, as I say in my book, she said, you better come around and sort these, these neighbours out because if you don't, you're going to be back around later taking them to the morgue and me to prison. She was fierce. She was fierce. But she sort of stood strong and I also have memories of her sort of grabbing a local racist up by the collars and, and, you know, pushing him up against the fence. And she was really protective of her kids. And did it make you very anxious as a child, do you think? Yeah. Um, because you just simply never knew when you were safe. And um, a sense of uh, threat was always there. And there was one incident of verbal abuse, wasn't there, when you were about seven, which you mm. feels like a really defining moment where you felt, you suddenly felt very divided as a person. Can you just explain what happened? Yeah, well, that's, that's why my book is taught called Maybe I Don't Belong Here. And, yeah. um, you've, I, know, I, I was always aware of large groups of white guys. So, you know, I, I call it my spider sense. My spider sense was always tingling when I was, when, you know, when you know you're under threat. But uh, I was playing outside my house one day and there was a... Um, an elderly white gentleman across the street, and he um, he just started making a beeline for me. And I thought, you know, it's an old man, he's not going to do anything. And he kind of, when he got close, he kind of leaned into my face, and he said, get the F out of my country, you little black bastard. Unbelievable. And, um, but I, but it, I didn't understand racism. I, you know, I, I, as a, what did you say? The first did you... time I'd ever really experienced that kind of face-to-face. But harder almost that it's the older generation, isn't it? Because you kind of knew they were supposed to behave. A little old man is not. I, it was really surprising. It was a real surprise. But I was kind of shocked more than anything else. Because... Um, Did you reply at all? Oh, no. Um, I just sort of watched him. He stared at me for a little bit after he said it and then just kind of turned away and walked off. And, but it was what he said that really... Mm. I, I, out of my country, he said. And, mm. and um, that's when I thought, oh... Maybe I don't belong here. Mm. You know, maybe this isn't my country. And I've really never been able to get that out of my head. Um, because the, every time, there's a certain, a certain sense when you relax and you feel you know, British and you feel English and then you can be abused and you suddenly, it's a, it's a very dislocating and painful experience to sort of be rejected from the place that you call home. Mm. And, um, you write about it as if you're being split in half. There's, a, there's an English half and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a black half. Sometimes I'm able to fuse those two halves together. But like, you know, when Rashford and Sancho and, and, and Sacco missed those penalties and just got that torrent of racist abuse the next day, that's very much when I felt mm-hmm. black yeah. again and not English. Because mm-hmm. there's, sometimes there's that bit of Englishness that 
thoroughly rejects me. And I'm very aware of that. And I'm very aware of protecting myself against that. Because it's too painful to, to experience that. And yes, you know, I can have an MBE and I can go to the palace and swan around with the princes and, and have a lovely day out, you know, doing something with the Prince's Trust and then, you know, get, on the, get, on, you know, get down to Stretton and some van driver calls you a black stone so You kind of, it's, you immediately sort of, it's very jarring to sort of um, be in a situation where you're constantly dealing with that sense of identity, that sense of belonging, um, and that the rejection of that sense of belonging. It's a very painful experience. People will say, yeah, you did, but where are you, where are you really from? It is that question now, and, isn't it? And I know people were, were a, a lot of people were attacked, the lady for saying, the, the black lady for bringing that up. But it's, it is really mm. sort of annoying and um, not just annoying, but I'm English. I was born here. Mm. And, uh, but people somehow struggle to sort of, get their heads around that and it's frustrating and annoying to to constantly have to be explaining that and with the Meghan and harry documentary i don't know if you've watched them but do you think there is still an element of racism within the royal family 100 percent. i mean look you know it's uh it's, I, w- I wouldn't even say that it, you know it, it that lady hussey proved the point in the sense that that, that there's a I'm not, I'm not even sure that it's racist there's a level of ignorance a lot of a lot of people I'm quite sure uh, are unfamiliar, you know, uh, you know, in with 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 black people, and uh, with conversations around culture and heritage, and uh, I, it just doesn't. It, it happens in any organisation. It happens in the Royal Mail. I'm sure it happens in the look at the fire brigade. It's just been called, you know, deemed institutionally racist. It's no surprise that a large organisation is going to have certain members who have, you know, some rather choice views. So I don't think we should be surprised. And how do your parents react to it? Did they, did you feel very protective towards them? And were they resigned to it? Or what was their view? They must have heard when you came home and said those sort of stories. Well, I, I tried to talk to my dad and then dad wouldn't talk about it. And, and it's extraordinary, actually, now looking back at it, the more I think about it, but now that generation didn't really say mm. a lot um, about racism. And I think... I now understand because they were traumatized by it. And what it must have been like for a Caribbean to get off the boat in Southampton, make their way to London, be spat at, be told they can't get work, can't get somewhere to live, and just be really faced with that torrent of rejection, having thought that the streets were paved with gold and for years being brought up that England was the mother country and to come here and face that level of rejection must have been quite, quite painful. Mm. And uh, so a lot of that generation rarely speak of their early experiences. So when I tried to talk to my dad about the, the racism I was experiencing, he sort of just brushed it under the carpet and um, didn't really want to drill, drill into it. So, but I'm, as I say, I think having done the work I've done on myself and written my book, I think it's because uh, it's trauma and you don't want to talk about it. Because uh, talking about that stuff is really tough. Then when you were in your early teens, your dad had a breakdown. Mm. How did you first realise that something was wrong? And do you think that was to do with the trauma that he'd suffered and, and suppressed? I think there was, that was to do with uh, 
overwork. Uh, you know, my, my, my dad had just taken too much on, basically, and was um, trying to be all things to all men. And um, he, he ran this, uh, this darts league. He sort of um, invented, you know, invented this whole darts league, my dad. And, <laughs> that sounds um, great then. it was fantastic and everyone loved it and brought everyone together and you know um, but he would do all the results and write up the reports and deliver it to the newspaper on the Monday <laughs> morning and, and he loved doing that but you know he was also doing working five days a week mm. uh, and um, you know going out at nights and, and, and you know down the pub with his mates and um, I just think he just took too much on and uh I, I mean, I wasn't aware of what was happening, but gradually became aware that something was amiss. And um, and then, you know, he wasn't there one night. And, you know, my mum said that he's, he's in the hospital and, he, and we went to see him and he was clearly not happy. Um, and he was never the same again after that. You know, he, he, he I don't know whether his was the same as mine, but um, he, was, he was certainly sectioned. Um, when you say not happy, what, what were the sim- what was the well, manifestation you know, of that? I mean, I know that um, having been sectioned myself, uh, that um, uh, admitting it, admitting that there's a problem is quite, you know, I think a lot of people who are there think they're perfectly fine and that they shouldn't be there. And there's, a, there's sometimes a lot of anger from, you know, towards people who called the authorities so my, my my dad wasn't very happy with my my mom for calling the authorities. He thought he was perfectly fine, but he wasn't. You know, he wasn't sleeping. He was acting strange. You know, he he, he you know he was having some form of breakdown, um, and um, just wasn't very very happy about it. So you know, he he was he was really quite angry, and um. As I said, having been through that experience, um, I know, I mean, mine was 30 years ago, so he's probably, his was 40 years ago, maybe 45 years ago. Um, I know from my experience that I was over-medicated when, when I was in, um, uh, on, on, on the ward. Uh, having look at, looked at my medical records, I know that I was given three times the three times the standard dose of tranquil, of sedatives. And um, apparently, having said that in my book, I've been contacted by several people who work in mental institutions to say that's quite standard practice because people are quite afraid of large black men. So they, are, they tend to over-medicate black people. So I can well assume that my father, having been uh, quite angry, and volatile was probably heavily medicated mm. and um, possibly even manhandled because you could see he hated it and didn't really want to be there at all. Got incredibly distressing for you, but also for your mum, wasn't it? Did oh, you? completely, yeah. She, you know, she, she, it was. And look, you know, watching somebody have a breakdown, I mean, my, I said, mine was psychosis, and it's an incredibly traumatic experience, not just for the people experiencing it, but the people watching it watching your loved one, your father, your mom, your brother, your sister have a psychotic breakdown is really scary because they, you know, they are talking nonsense and um, passionately talking nonsense. And it's very bizarre to see 
you just don't know what to do. And in the end, you have to call the authorities. And, you know, watching them, watching them being taken away is, again, doubly traumatizing. Visiting them on the ward is doubly traumatizing because they don't want to be there. They don't understand what's happening. And there's a stigma and a shame attached to it. And it's, it's, a, it's a dreadful cocktail of events. And, you know, I get, I get messages people sliding into my DMs. Normally people slide into your DMs to sort of, you know, chat you up. But my, my, my <laughs> Instagram feed has become this hub of a mental health. People just asking for help. Your mother's, you know, just saying, oh, thank you so much for writing your book. You know, it's really made me uh, aware of, you know, the fact that, he, you know, that they're going to get better. My son has just been sectioned. You know, I, do, I, mean, he's, I went to see him and it was very traumatizing. And I don't, you know, I'm worried that he's never going to be the same. But now I've read your book and I can see that there's a, there's a way out. There's, there's a recovery. And I think that's probably one of the best things that I've done is, is prove that you can recover from, from, from those uh, experiences because uh, when you're in the midst of it, it's a really scary place mm. to be. So just tell us what happened. When did you first realise things were starting to go wrong for you? Um, when I left drama school, when I left drama school, it was, it was uh, uh, a very destabilising time. And I had, um, you know, I'd sort of gone to drama school with this sort of, uh, you know, and I'd sort of fallen in love with uh, literature and and. At school, I'd never really paid that much attention, but suddenly I'm, you know, reading Chekhov and Dostoevsky and Brecht and Stoppard, and, and I'd never really had that as in my upbringing, and just loving literature, loving plays, and playing characters, and and having this sort of rebirth, and this my imagination was sparking and firing. I loved it; it was wonderful. Um, but then I came out of drama school, and I, you know, I came out of drama school, and suddenly I was a black actor and not an actor. I was a black actor. Right. And so does only, that mean you were only offered certain parts? Yeah, only and... played black parts. And suddenly I haven't played you know, doing Moliere and playing King Lear and suddenly there's an, an, a reality was, or the external reality was, but you're black. And, and um, very stereotypical roles. Very stereotypical roles and, um, and really hostile press as well, really hostile um, reviews personal reviews against me. Uh, how dare I play this part? And who does he think he is playing these roles? And looks more like Mike Tyson than Romeo. And uh, oh. I mean, they were really quite personal and mm. quite... And, and, and let me tell you, it's, if it's that relentless, it's, it's re it is really difficult to kind of keep your head above water and keep, keep yourself together. If it's that relentless. And I, I, I felt it was... It was a relentless torrent. It was hostile. And, you know, we were the first generation, my generation was the first generation of British-born trained black actors. You know, there'd been the generation before that had been Rudolph Walker, Jamaicans and Caribbeans had come over and started playing, doing Shakespeare. And then there was the, the pre-generation to me, Gary MacDonald and Robbie G that had, you know, come out of national theatre workshops and gone into the business that way. But we were sort of, we'd, we'd I'd gone through the, drama school system, uh, RADA. So we were these, we were classically trained black actors and uh, going on to play, you know, parts of the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National and people, you know, I remember friends, my friends of mine saying, telling me that people were walking out of the RSE because there was a black king of France, you know, shout, demanding their money back. You know, how dare they cast, you know, 
what's that black actor doing on stage? Mm. So there was this real revulsion to, to us and, um, and hostility, as I say, towards us. And um, I found that very destabilising. Do you think that's why you had the breakdown? Was it well, just that's when it started, because yeah. I stopped, stopped reading the... I had to stop reading the reviews and press um, because, because they were just... Uh, it, it was... I was losing confidence. And um, so I felt very much rejected by kind of mainstream establishment. And then because I speak the way I speak, I was also rejected by the black community. And you know, you're not black enough. You know, you've got to be you're not, you're not street enough. You're not down enough, you know. So I was sort of, I didn't really know who I was. So there's two halves. I just stuff. lost my identity. Mm. I didn't know if I, I didn't fit in on the black side of the street and I didn't fit on the white side of the street. So I was trying to go my own way. And, and that uh, led to me drinking to get on stage and, and, and uh, you know, to get the courage to get on, get on stage. I was, you know, to hit the bottle. And then, and then um, I had a very unhappy, my second job was, was a very unhappy experience. Um, with a with an older actress who um, was very handsy, and uh, I just didn't know how to deal with that. So not only was I dealing with all this racial stuff, I was dealing with this handsy elder. Uh, I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to play it. I didn't know what. I really was in a bit of a spot, and it was uh, a really uncomfortable place. And um, I just started drinking to get on stage to get through that experience the only way I could get on stage was to have half a bottle of whiskey and that then led to me um smoking um you know uh um various substances and um I sort of started spiraling in from there I knew that something was amiss uh, you know with with psychosis particularly your some of the attributes are illusions delusions hallucinations and I, and I started to see things and sort of, you know, feel things. And I, and I knew I wasn't 100% well. But it's actually quite exciting. And I think that's one of the things... <laughs> that's interesting. That's one of the things about psychosis, mm. that why people don't want to go and see, uh, get help. In what way is it exciting? Because you're not sleeping. You know, if, you, if you're not sleeping, you're in that sort of hyper mm. energy, energy state. And, um, and you feel your imagination you, is yeah, really I was buzzing. buzzing. Absolutely mm. buzzing. I had these fantastic ideas and... Uh, I was drawing stuff and writing stuff and creating stuff and, you know, cutting things out of newspapers and sticking them on, making my own posters and sticking them on my clothes and people walking out, walking down the street, people going, oh, I understand what you're doing here. This is really, really interesting. And kind of de deciphering what I was, things I had stuck on my body. And, and uh, I, I, it was a very, it was actually very, and it's like, I think people who suffer from bipolar can be like that. And in fact, that was why I think Homeland was such a, Incredible depiction yes. of that. Yeah. Carrie, Carrie she's was. actually mm. flying, is actually really good because mm. she can put all these pieces together. And you're, you're kind of like that when you're in the early stages of psychosis. You're sort of making connections, uh, getting great ideas, uh, overthinking things, uh, uh, and sort of, so, sort of, uh, it's kind of a hyper thought. It really is hyper thought. You know, you're waking up in the middle of the night and going for a walk and, and, uh, I mean, I was, I was, I'd literally wake up on Oxford Street at three o'clock in the morning and think, how the hell do I get here? And but that's I'd quite scary walking. as well. It was very scary. And then I'd start walking home and I'd black out and right. I'd find myself in Camden at two o'clock in the afternoon and have no idea how I got there. 
You're listening to Past Imperfect in association with the youth social mobility charity, Speakers for Schools, with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest this week, the actor, David Harewood. We'll be back after this. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Past Imperfect, an association with Speakers for Schools, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the actor David Harewood. How did you actually finally get section? Was there a moment? My friends, when... yeah, my friends okay. um, came to um, stay with me um, because they could see that something wasn't right. Mm. And um, I didn't understand what was happening. Every time I got out of, my, got out of bed, I'd see one of my old friends and go, oh, hello, mate. <laughs> and have this, they had to have this conversation with me again. And, I'd, and, then, and, and then I'd sort of pass out and go to bed. And then they'd sort of, They'd sit with me, sit in the, li- in the living room, wait for me to wake up and go through the same process again. And um, one evening uh, in the middle of the night, I, start, I, I, I went for this massive walk and got arrested. Uh, went to, went to got held in a cell overnight. Went to court, um, got out of there, went home. And they were there for me. They were waiting outside my house. And they were all really worried because they'd been looking for me all night. When eventually I you know, let them in the house, and and they said, "Oh look, we need to, we need to, we need to take you back." Because so, three weeks before that, they'd actually taken me to a, they'd finally persuaded me to go to a doctor, a psychiatrist, and and um, and it was another subtle element of racism because, uh, or just don't know racism, but just. Um, lazy thought and you know we, we we they were worried and i said okay finally i said let's go to the doctors we went to the doctors and i spoke to this doctor for about an hour and um when i came out he gave me a bottle of tablets and and said to my mates and my mate said to him is he okay and he, he said yeah he just thinks he's lenny henry oh no and i was really that's terrible angry. i was really angry and they all went they looked at me and thought that's ridiculous. Yeah. And we all agreed to throw the bottle of pills in the bin. But and had, is- he, had he had been more uh, caring, he would have explained to me that I am uh, uh, in the early stages of psychosis. Mm. I need to rest, take these tablets, I need to sleep. 
had he been a bit more thorough like that, uh, I, I probably wouldn't have had this really dramatic breakdown. But And there was one night, wasn't there, where you started hearing voices. You thought Martin Luther King was speaking. That was the night I went out. Yeah, that was the voice. So what happened? Just, can you describe what it's like to hear the voices? Oh, man. Do you really uh, think the person's there? Yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, psychosis is an extraordinary condition. You think you can control the weather. You think people are following you. You think you're hearing, getting messages from outer space. And you believe it. And uh, had, you know, I'm lucky because, uh, you know, I've got, I, I guess I'm reasonably benevolent. Uh, so the voice in my head was a benevolent voice. Um, and I did everything this voice told me to do. Now, had that voice have told me to jump mm. off Westminster Bridge, I'd have done it. And that's what people do. And what were the voices telling you mainly? It was just one voice, and it was I was lit, I was fast asleep, and I just heard this wake up. And it was like, who the hell said that? And I, looked, I was literally looking around the room, and then this voice started was literally droning in my head. And I was looking around the room. And he said, "Don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Uh, I am speaking to you from beyond the grave. Who, I can't let you know who I am right now." He says, "But you know, I need you to get ready because I've got a mission for you." And I was like, "Mission? What's this mission?" It was a huge mission. He said, <laughs> he, said um, he said, my name is Martin Luther King. And I started weeping in my bedroom. And he said, look, the minute I died, when I was shot, when I was assassinated, um, I went over, to, crossed over to the other side and I'm now speaking to you from beyond the grave. And uh, my mission isn't complete. I'm still trying to close the gap between good and evil. And I've chosen several people around the world who are going to become angels tonight. And you are one of them. And I'm weeping. My bedroom. He says, you're one of them and uh, I've got this mission for you. I have to walk to Camden, go into this shop. Don't be surprised to find that it's open. Go to the back of the store. There'll be a suit hanging up. Pick, put the suit on. Whatever you do, do not turn around until I tell you to because when you turn around, it's going to be another day and in another year and you will have successfully become crossed over to the side. In some ways, was it actually quite useful as an actor? I mean, it's a bizarre thing to say, but... Yeah, it has become. I mean, yeah. I mean, the experience for me has been... Um, uh, it's added a certain dimension to my to my character. And um, also a sort of kind of fearlessness, you know. I mean, if I can get myself in and out of a mental institution, mm. you know, playing Othello at the National, walking the park, really. Well, and the sense of emotional extremes. Yeah, but it's kind of... It gives you a certain fearlessness, I think. Mm. Um, what was the hospital like? Was it like revisiting your father's experience? Did you feel that? Did you feel there was a sort of circle? Uh, well, well um, I, I wasn't on... We didn't get to go onto the ward when, when I saw my father. They came, he came out and we sat in the reception and you know, we sat across the table. But when you're actually on the ward, that's a scary place because um, you know, people are disturbed. And um, people... I, I was disturbed. Mm. But there's all there's varying degrees of 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 illness. No, nobody was violent. Um, th there was one guy who would literally measure. He had a tape measure, and he would literally measure distances on the floor, random distances on the floor. He spent his whole entire day on his hands and knees. And and I, I sort of thought, well, you know, maybe he was a carpenter or something. Maybe he was a, a you know, because he would literally just measure the spaces and then. Get up and make little calculations and go on, and then measure, and, and he would do that all day long. And then there was another guy who um, there was another waif-like girl, beautiful girl, 
who just stood facing the wall and uh, got very upset if anyone got anywhere near her. What were you doing? I was watching everybody. And that's one of the joys of being an actor, you know, is people watching. And uh, we're almost taught to do that, to watch people, to keep watching human behavior. Uh, and sometimes you go to the zoo and watch animals. You know, if you, is your character a stork? Is your character a robin? Or is your character a lion or a panther or an elephant? You know, you sort of put, there's you know, methods of acting that where you, you put your, your character into an animal and you take the attributes of the animal. So I was, I found it absolutely fascinating watching all these people. And that's sort of what got me through it, really. Because I knew, back in, in the back of my head, I knew that I was an actor. I, I used to be an actor. And I was, uh, I just thought, well, I might as well use, use this as an as as experience. So I just sat there watching people all day and falling asleep. And when you were doing your, the documentary, you went back and read the medical records. Yeah, that was really difficult. What, what did you learn about yourself and about the experience? It was really difficult. And yeah. that, in fact, um, the day uh, I went to, had to film that sequence, I was a hell of a day um, because um, uh, I had obviously didn't even know they existed. And when they told me that they had them, I, I remember going to collect them. And the scene was I was supposed to open them and read them because everything I said and did in this mental institution was recorded. And I opened the page and I saw something and I just shut it and said, cut, cut, not doing this. And um, it was it was all to do with my race. Everything I was saying in, in the mental institution was about my race. I was confused as to my identity. I said something like, I'd merged hearts with the black boy. I, I've, I have to save the black boy. Where's the black boy? I have to get back to the black boy. And I was kept saying things like this. And, so is it back to that sort of split personality yeah. thing? Um, Incredibly hard to read. Though. Really difficult. Yeah. Really, really difficult. And um, I... Getting through the, and that was literally day five of the documentary. And I had another 15 days to go, and I was really struggling. And um, a couple of times, uh, didn't think I could do it. And what saved me was the kids that I was, I was interviewing, because they were dealing with psychosis and in recovery from psychosis, and they were so brave and um, so wonderful. And, uh, and, they're really inspiring, really inspiring, and they, 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 in, in case in, in certain respects they took the um, emphasis off me because I was not only uncovering uh, what psychosis was, I was uncovering what happened to me, mm. and I think I, th I th when I originally suggested the idea of the documentary, I just thought I was in a better place with it than I, than I actually mm -hmm. was. I just, there was or I had not dealt with any of this stuff. I just buried it. So even though I'd sort of got better reasonably quickly, I hadn't dealt with the causes of what had sent me or, or, or the stuff that was, was brought up through that. So did you just, you came out of hospital because of the drugs that you were given rather than any kind of psychiatry? Better. I mean, they, you know, they just give you a bottle of tablets and tell you to, you know, keep taking them. And back in those days, it was chlorpromazine. Chlorpromazine was the main drug. But no psychotherapy. No. Nothing. No follow-up, nothing. Just take the ERTs, a bottle of tablets, keep taking them. And then when I, and they, I was massively overweight and depressed and slow 
like I literally was like that and uh, very depressed and I said to my mum you know this isn't really working she rang up the hospital and said like you know you know he's been out of hospital now um, two weeks you know do we, do we reduce the tablets what do we do and they said oh yeah just stop taking them so from being really slow to being really hyper very quickly and I knew I was hyper and I knew I was buzzing but I desperately wanted to get on with my career. So I hid it from my mom and then went down to London and had another mini breakdown. Uh, and they came to collect me. Uh, and then my mom was typically mommish and, uh, you know, gave me half a tablet for a couple of days and then a quarter of a tablet for a couple of days and just weaned me off these tablets. Mm. And uh, within three weeks, I was fine. And I came back to London and got on with my career, but I didn't address anything. Mm. So this documentary that I did brought all this back up to the fore. And um, it was a really, I was, I was quite traumatised by the whole experience of making that documentary. And how much do you think the trigger was to do with race? And was there a genetic element? What do you think were the main causes? Uh, uh, yeah, I think my confusion of uh, race was a ma major factor. You know, and I've always sort of grown up um, in a cosmopolitan, uh, di very diverse in environment school. But then going down to RADA was very, uh, the white space, and then going into theatre was very much a white space. Uh, and uh, throughout my career, I've always been normally the only, as I am here, the only black person in the room. Um, uh, so uh, issues to do with my identity and my race I hadn't really faced them. I hadn't really dealt with them. Uh, and I hadn't really given them much thought. So um, uh, as I think recovering, you know, I, I, I then sort of spent early, you know, my, my uh, post-breakdown career just working and just getting on with it and just accepting being the only person in the room and, and just getting on with it. But um, after my... but. Uh, um, after the documentary, I employed a black therapist, sought out a black therapist, and um, really sat down and went through these medical records and uh, really tried to examine my own um, uh, uh, thoughts on race, uh, what I felt about it, my identity, um, uh, that sense of not being black enough, dealing with that, you know, um, uh, and getting to a, getting to a place of equilibrium within myself, where I feel uh, I'm perfectly balanced, and I feel you know I'm not saying I'm yeah you know, I've got it all figured out, but I'm certainly a lot more cognizant and happy with myself in my life, having addressed the issues that um, uh, were in my medical records. I'm, I'm not quite I'm not as confused and. I think I see it, you know, once you've run naked through the village, it's very liberating. <laughs> and I feel as though I've, the documentary, talking about my race, talking about colour and my vulnerabilities has uh, actually empowered me. Uh, I'm no longer quite as uh, um, uh, flaky uh, as I probably once was. And how did you get into acting in the beginning? Because there can't have been many black role models. There weren't any, no. Um, well, I was just a classroom clown, really, just a, a kid who enjoyed messing around. And but I always loved 
as I said in my book, I always, for some reason, loved watching Parkinson when I was a kid. <laughs> and um, Parkinson always had these great guests on. And they all seemed so glamorous. Peter Houston off, and Peter O'Toole and Michael Caine. And it was the age and it was that age when the movie stars were movie stars. You know, they lived these glamorous lives and Richard Burton. And, and I would, I'd hang on their every word. And I'd loved, I loved hearing them talk about characters. And I loved movies as a kid. Mm. Um, so it just, it just, there was a glamour and a, a sort of, uh, otherworldliness to, to, to when the actors came on. I was, I, I, I loved that. And, uh, I, and then I guess when Lenny Henry appeared on, you know, as on new faces, it was, Oh yeah, you, you can be funny. And, you know, do, do, do Frank Spencer impersonations and David Bellamy impersonations. And that's the sort of thing I was doing. And I thought, I, you know, this is, I can do this. I'm allowed to do this. Um, so, uh, I was just always messing around and, uh, doing school plays and uh, I was asked to do a school play, funnily enough, played Martin Luther King in my first school play. And, um, and then when I was about to leave school, uh, when I was 16, was it 17? Seven, maybe 16, 17, A-levels, still on the A-levels, didn't do very well. Um, on my very last, one of my very last days, my teacher called me in and uh, to his office. And I thought I was in trouble. And he said, hey, what are you going to do when you leave? I said, I don't know, sir. I'm, I don't know. He said, well, we've been talking in the staff room and we think you should be an actor. <laughs> and that was a eureka moment. I thought, oh, yeah, I'd be an actor. Even though there weren't any black actors that, that I knew of. And the school was so proud they created a whole category in their careers of did, yes, A, now for, actor. a for actor. And there's but, been a, well, I think there's been one or two actors since then. What did your parents think, though? Ah, they thought I was nuts. Okay. They were, as I said, they weren't any actors, and um, my dad really couldn't get his head around it. You know, what is that? What are you going to do? You're going to go off down to London and, you know, get molested. <laughs> you know, they weren't far off, actually. But, uh, um, uh, you know, that I was just going to, I was going to be a, a sort of novelty, I guess. But, but, um, as soon as I, I, I auditioned for Birmingham Youth Theatre and was rejected. That was my first rejection. And then I auditioned for the National Youth Theatre and they accepted me. And I went down to London immediately. Found, I knew I'd found my tribe. I love actors. I love the theatre. I love working with um, talented creators. It's just my idea of heaven. And as soon as I sort of had spent a couple of days with these people, I thought, I'm on the right track here. And in your documentary, you talk about how black people are 10 times more likely to mm. suffer from serious psychiatric problems. Why is that? Do you think that is because you're constantly trying to juggle your life and who you are? And I think so. And I think you know, there have been studies, there's a wonderful study by a Jamaican um, psychotherapist who was actually rubbished when he came over here and dismissed when he came over here, not surprisingly, because they don't really listen. Um, but he uh, wrote an, uh, a report. And he called it, I think he called the roast, roast breadfruit syndrome, he said. And he said what he found was that uh, there's very little, I mean, it's, it's not unheard of, but there's quite low cases of, of black mental ill health in Africa. It does happen, but the numbers are quite low. Um, higher in the Caribbean, 
but still not on the numbers now in the UK. It's only when they leave a predominantly black environment to a predominantly white environment, uh, Western cultures, um, America and Britain, Australia, where you get massively high numbers of uh, black mental ill health. And I think it's living in a society where you are othered uh, and constantly having to deal with that and constantly being rejected, uh, constantly having to fight, uh, constantly having to prove yourself. Uh, um, I think that is that causes an enormous amount of stress. But in, in the, conversely, you've refused to be a victim as a result of it. You've almost turned it around, turned it into a positive in a funny way. You'd say it's a remarkable event in your life. Do you feel there has been some benefit to you? It's given you an oh, massively, massively. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to, um, to, to nail it specifically, but I think it's such an extraordinary event that, uh, it's, as I say, it's given me a fearlessness. Uh, that if I can do that, I can. If I can do that and get out of it and get over it, I can do anything. And I think it's really only since making the documentary and really um, seeing the effects of that. And I had no way. I, I was very scared when the documentary. I didn't watch it. I was really, really. I, when I started seeing adverts for it, I got really worried. I thought I'd ruin my career, and I thought I thought I'd uh, never work again. My wife was really worried that the kids were going to get, you know, you know, ridiculed at school and that I'd, I'd make them, uh, I'd made them vulnerable. And I hadn't thought of any of that and I really started to panic. So um, it was an extraordinary night. I remember the night it was on, my kids went to bed, early. they never go to bed early. They went to bed early. Um, my wife went to bed early and I was sitting up thinking, I'm not going to, I can't watch this. And I turned, it, I turned the TV off I can't remember what I did. I think I had a therapy session. I actually rang up my therapist and had a, a session with him and then um, got into bed and just as I was about to drift off to sleep, every single device in my house started buzzing, beeping, vibrating and making noises. Emails, text messages, all sorts of messages coming through. People just saying, absolutely amazing, fantastic documentary. Thank you so much. Really helped me. My dad had a breakdown. We didn't know what it was. Next email, my God, that happened to my sister. I've just realized what it was. And it was just a, just a cacophony of noise. It's just all these messages coming in from people I hadn't met in years saying thank you. And um, next day, mine, the charity mine, rang me up and said, calls about psychosis have risen 107% since your documentary. People suddenly realize what it is. And the next day I went for a walk. You know, I always walk my dog in the morning. That's one of my favorite things to do is walk my dog. And I literally couldn't walk 10 steps without being stopped by people just saying thank you. Uh, strange, total strangers who started immediately crying and saying, that happened to me, that happened to my dad, that happened to my mom, that happened to my brother, that happened to my girlfriend, my girlfriend's just been sectioned. I, and, I, it, and I suddenly realised how common it is. Mm. And uh, it was, I was very vulnerable for a, about a week because I would literally find myself sobbing. Because it's a really traumatising thing to talk about. And um, I find myself sobbing on the corner, on the street corner with total strangers uh, as they recounted their experiences of watching their loved ones go through it. And they just wanted to say thank you because someone's speaking about it. And I've been quite overwhelmed by that. Um, the fact that um, it's really helped people. And is it incredibly important, do you think, for actors and celebrities and people in the public eye to talk about mental health issues? Um, 
Because we didn't for so it's long in this country, own, did we? But, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that um, it's becoming more mm. uh, mainstream. I mean, you know, Ben Stokes took some time off for his mental health. Look at him now, probably the best England captain, England mm. captain we've ever had. So I, I, I think, I think the fact that, and I, I've started to do many more talks, particularly in banks, in the banking sector, is doing very, very well now. Mental health and making sure that there's a, uh, a, um, a, a, a you know, somebody in the organisation that people can talk to trying to encourage their staff to talk about their mental health, you know, encouraging people to come forward if they're struggling. And um, I think that's a, that's a plus that these major organisations, you know, accept that some people might be, particularly now with the cost of living crisis and how tough life is now, people are under an enormous amount of stress. So I think it's beholden on employers to, you know, give their employees a space to talk if they just would. Even if you just sometimes you just want to go in and have a good old cry, you know, because you, you're finding things tough, and that can benefit you. So I think under the umbrella of well-being and care, yes, I think it's great that mental health matters and people are being more cognizant of um, of mental well-being. I think it's Do a you plus. Think are men more willing to talk oh, totally, about it as well? Yeah. Is the masculinity kind of breaking down? Completely. And my, I've got a friend of mine. Uh, I did an event up in. Um, where was that? Is up in Leeds and Luke Ambler. I think he's a former, former um, um, rugby league player. Big tough bloke. And his best mate committed suicide. Uh, literally two hours after he'd seen him, said he had no idea that it was going to happen. It really, really upset him. And he started having these men's groups where men. Uh, come together and talk about, uh, you know, all sorts of issues. He's had to open three or four different centres now because it's become incredibly popular. And he says that uh, he gets all sorts of, you know, big, gruff working men to, you know, young men to Asian men to white men, black men, all sorts of guys. And it's become really, it's like a space for men to come and talk about, sort of like Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's, where they talk about their feelings. And he's been really overwhelmed by that. And I think that's an extraordinary um, achievement that he's done. That, and sort of, again, breaks that taboo and the idea that you know, men don't talk about their feelings, because they do, really. It, you just have to give them, create the space for it. And you then really took off with Homeland. I mean, people had heard of you, but you became a household name. Everyone mm. was obsessed by it. And it's actually rather interesting that it was, Karen Matheson was bipolar mm. uh, in it. How did you get the job? I started, you know, going over to America to do pilot season, and it's extraordinary when you go over there. And literally on the top, on the top of the page on these auditions, it says, "Please send more actors of color. Please send more diverse cast. If you have a diverse, uh, if you have diverse talent, can you please send them along?" You don't get that here. So is America just better at recognizing yeah. talent? Again, it's as in it's, yeah. it's just different, and there's more imagination and um, uh, more visible. And uh, so I suddenly got this script through. For Homeland, and I initially again didn't didn't respond to it because a friend of mine had you know recently died, and I lost my confidence and uh, didn't think I was I could do it anymore. And my manager rang me up and said, "Just put yourself on tape." So I got my phone, recorded my phone, recorded the audition on my phone, sent it off. You know, and you do these self tapes, and actors think nobody's going to ever going to watch them, but they do watch them. And somebody watched it, and they went, "That's him." So 
within 16 days. It took 16 days from the audition to first day of filming. And I'd never done, never done an American accent before. Knew nothing about CIA. And what was it like suddenly swanning around in Hollywood meeting Sidney Poitier and all well, your heroes? I, like I said, you know, the weekend I got Homeland, I had 80 quid left in the bank. I hadn't worked in a year and my career was pretty much in the toilet. Um, I, I, you know, I had a fantastic start to my career. 20s and 30s were great. And then 40s, just everything just like fell off a cliff. And um, it's that famous actor statement, five, you know, the five stages of an actor's life. It's get me David Harewood, get me a younger David Harewood, get me a cheaper David Harewood, get me someone who looks like David Harewood, who's David Harewood? Uh, and I was very much in the who's David Harewood phase. And um, so Homeland was really mm. just sort of saved my bacon and, and um, launched me back in America. And then they just start, once I was, it's different over there. Once you could prove your worth, you're in. And um, just being offered parts over there. So I've, this is the best of enemies is the first time I've been on stage in 10 years. So. And you actually went to Harewood House and you met yes. the Earl of Harewood, which must have been bizarre. But, you know, he owned slaves that presumably your well, name the, would the have... The second Earl of Harewood owned my great, 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 great grandparents. So 18, we've t- I've taken, I've got research back to 18, 1810, I think. Richard Harewood was the first Harewood. And um, difficult to go back beyond that because slaves weren't given surnames. But um, at the, uh, during the abolition of slave trade, uh, when slavery was abolished, to stop the sale of slaves, all slaves were given the surname of their owners. So the first Harewood was Richard Harewood. First black Harewood was Richard Harewood, should I say. And um, he married Betty. They had Bartholomew. Bartholomew had... Henry, Henry had uh, Romeo, somebody else, and then and it's Romeo, and then it's me. So it's quite extraordinary. You see that line, that line, that linear line. So it uh, must have been so strange. You see your name all over this estate. Yeah, but, but also but, it was odd. But it, I, you know, I accepted the invitation from David, and I think initially the TV company who put us together. I think they kind of wanted some fireworks and wanted some sort of screaming and banging of the table and some angry fisticuffs. But David's a former, you know, he's a Buddhist and he's actually a really nice guy and a former TV producer. Um, so we have a lot of stuff in common and we, it was, it was odd and, uh, and I didn't quite know because it was also a couple of weeks after George Floyd was murdered. So it was sort of odd to, to, to be sitting there having the conversation. Um, but he re- recently invited me back. And to be honest with you, David LaSalle's, has done more than nearly any other stately home to be very open and honest about where the money came from. He's got lots of literature in the house about slavery. There's lots of exhibitions in the house about where the money came from. So he's actually been, you know, very open about it. The first Earl of Harewood to be open and honest about it. Well, he actually said something which was very interesting and I think um, uh, admirable. He just says, look, I wasn't responsible but I can be accountable. And I think that's exactly what he's doing. It's Did you think of changing your name at all or not? I think if I was younger, I might have done. But uh, what was also interesting about that trip to Harewood House was that I saw that the name dated back to 1116. So it was even pre-slavery. Uh, the, the Harewood name was pre... You know, so, and they were 
extremely wealthy lords and from West Yorkshire. They were an extremely wealthy bunch. Uh, well to do was a Harewood Castle, and um, um, the Lords of Harewood they were called. So they were a pretty fancy bunch. And seeing the name that pre-slavery was helped me a little bit because it wasn't just slavery. Obviously, they made a fortune through the, that period, but the name existed before that. I guess it took the took the curse off it a little bit. And looking back to yourself at the age of seven, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? Um, that there was, I, I think, I think kids need to know that um, there will be challenges and that, uh, you know, tough times are ahead. And even though it's all kind of sunshine and roses, uh, not to all children, often that some children have horrendous lives but uh, and those actually, funnily enough, will probably be the ones that survive better. Uh, but I, 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 I guess I, I wish I'd have known to be prepared for challenges and, and the dark times because they took me by surprise and um, spanned me out a little bit. So, uh, but you know, I, my therapist, as I said, one of the things that end this on that one of the things I was screaming when I was being sectioned apparently and I knew knew nothing about this was I was screaming I have to save the boy when seven policemen were sitting on top of me I have to save the boy and I spoke to a therapist and she, and she said who do you think that boy is and I said I think it's me my younger self and my therapist tells me now to make sure I look after that young boy so it's not what I would say to that young self, it's what I say to him every day, because that makes me look after myself. I care for myself by um, looking after myself and giving myself some attention and um, making sure I check in with myself and making sure I don't overwork and I don't push myself too far. So it's a, it's a constant conversation I have with my seven-year-old. David Hayward, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. You've been listening to Past Imperfect in association with the youth social mobility charity Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the actor David Hayward. The producer was Lucy Ditchmont. If you enjoyed this episode of Past Imperfect, please do go to the Times Radio app where you can download our interviews with guests including Keir Starmer, Lem Sisse and Brian Cox. You can also buy a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colours to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.